Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 229, One Threat at a Time, Please. Last time, as de Gaulle, Churchill, and Vichy went round and round, trying to figure out who would control what part of the island, a new player emerged on the stage, and making the most of their entrance, the Japanese came in swinging, damaging the flagship Romilly's while sinking the SS British loyalty, though she had been sacrificed to save the warship from further damage. This was on May 30th, 1942. Either way, Churchill's greatest fear had become a reality. Three days later, the British commandos were told of two young men running north from Diego Suarez Bay. They were caught, killed, and buried. And that's when the Allies knew that the Japanese were here. The effects of those dead men were brought back to Anserain, and as one had paperwork on his person, a British naval officer who spoke and read Japanese was flown in. The news only got worse. The paper, or papers, revealed that the now-deceased men belonged to a crew that itself belonged to the 1st Division of the 8th Submarine Flotilla, and in command of this flotilla was Rear Admiral Ishisaki, and with him were four submarines. And then it got worse. It can always get worse. The flotilla was made up of four subs, I-10, I-16, I-18, and I-20. The I-10, Ishisaki's flagship, had a catapult-operated aircraft, whereas the other three subs had one midget submarine each. And as these crews were experienced, they had been a part of Pearl Harbor, they were expected and expecting to do well again. But it got worse. There had been a fifth sub, the I-30, but she was sent on to France proper to gather a valuable cargo. What that was is unknown. Not that it matters, as on her way back from the mainland, I-30 hit a mine and was lost with her crew. But there was only so much the dead man's papers could tell the British. The Japanese subs were the Western Advanced Flotilla and was the manifestation of what Admiral Nomura had promised Admiral Frick when he asked for assistance from the Japanese Empire. Another thing the British did not could not know, was that the subs had come with two armed supply ships. Hence, they were able to cross the Indian Ocean without stopping, and the Germans were promised that the subs would operate in African waters from May until July. And it had been the plane of I-10 that the British had seen flying over. But it gets worse. The submarines, upon arrival, had bypassed Madagascar and had gone closer to the African coast. And there before them sat 40 Allied cargo ships. Yes, they could have made a mess of that grouping, but the subs? They were hunting enemy warships. Vichy had passed on to the Germans, and thus the Japanese, that there was a carrier in Diego Suarez Bay. But by the time the subs arrived to the north of the eastern end of Madagascar, the illustrious had departed to join the eastern fleet. So on the night of May 29th, the three subs with midget submarines were told to launch their smaller craft, make their way into the bay, and attack any warships come upon. And as the British had thrown this attack and occupation force together rather rapidly, the entrance to the bay still had no submarine boom or nets of any kind. The bay was open to all comers. Inside the bay at the time, It had taken the midget subs a while to get inside as they were launched 10 miles east of the Arangia Peninsula, 
the lower half of the bay's opening, that the Corvette Time was on patrol, with the second Corvette, Janista, on standby. But not everything went right for the submariners, either. I-18 could not launch her midget sub, due to a mechanical failure. Still, the two remaining subs, as we have seen, entered the bay and struck true. The two now-dead Japanese soldiers had been from I-20 and were making for a rendezvous point to the northwest. Again, the British did not know most of this, but their midget sub was accidentally come upon by a routine air patrol, and there, another Japanese sailor's body was found. All this was happening fast, and none of it was good, which is when South African Prime Minister Jan Smuts stepped back into the conversation to basically say, I told you so, and we should take the rest of the island, now. Officially, he wrote to Churchill on June 1st, attack must have been made by Vichy submarine or by Japanese submarine on Vichy information and advice. It all points to necessity of eliminating Vichy control completely from island as soon as possible. Appeasement is as dangerous in this case as it has proved in all others, and I trust we shall soon make a clean job of this whole business. My South African brigade group stands ready and simply awaits transport. And adding a mystery to the tension, the Japanese did not attack again. They simply patrolled around Madagascar. That is, until the middle of July. As for the wounded Ramillies, the crew took off enough ammunition and oil to level her out, and on May 30th, she made her way to Dunbar to be repaired. Fortunately, she did not make contact with the subs, nor the other way around. On a lighter note, or perhaps a hysterical one, Vichy then got involved. They claimed that the sub-attack on the Romilies and SS British loyalty, the latter would be floated and repaired later, had been the work of London, to justify Operation Ironclad in the first place. Never mind the three dead Japanese sailors and the captured midget sub, that the Japanese sailors had been buried and thus were not open to examination, was only more proof to the Vichy way of thinking. Knowing the Japanese were out there somewhere, the defenses around Anserain were beefed up. Also, nerves were tense, and it did not help when a convoy somehow got past the air patrols. The ground troops were put on alert and stayed that way for ten days as the convoy got closer and closer. Finally, the convoy was spotted, but now very close to the bay's entrance. It was a British convoy. Next, the Allied troops were told that intelligence reports indicated that German planes had just arrived at Mahunga, about 300 miles or 482 kilometers below Anserain on the west coast, in boxes, but that the French were frantically putting them together. Something had to be done before those planes lifted off. So, on July 17th, the Allied Era Chart air component took off, but to be safe, attacked Mahunga and Tamatave, the latter being even further away from Anserain, but along the east coast. But it seems that the report was incorrect. There were no Germans, planes, or people on the island, and a Beaufort had been lost during one of the raids. But there were real enemies on the island, to be sure. Vichy had gone nowhere. In fact, Vichy troops, or locals working for Vichy, occasionally harassed the defensive perimeter below the Arachart airfield. 
But with so many Allied men added to the population, more food was needed. Thus, the perimeter was pushed out even further to the south. This happened over and over, and by June, the line was now 80 miles, or 128 kilometers, below Arachart Airfield, which of course meant the perimeter was longer, and thus harder to patrol. The Vichy took advantage of this with raids, but so far, no full-scale attack. Just across the river, near the British perimeter, Vichy set up their own defensive line, as if to say, you shall not pass. And their leader, at least locally, was a Commandant Lano. And what you need to know about Commandant Lano was that the VC, Victoria Cross, and DSO, or Distinguished Service Order, awards on his tunic were homemade. The ribbons were fake, but not his intentions. British outposts were raided, locals who worked for the British were punished, and two British soldiers were captured. Mr. Fake Meadows had been ordered to harass, so harass he did. While trying to defend against the annoying Vichy troops to the south and a possible Japanese attack from hell anywhere, the British were now in control of the administration of Anserain, which basically meant Brigadier Lush and the foreign service worker with him whenever he arrived. And the first headache on Lush's lap was, which side of the road should everyone drive on? The French had driven on the right, the British the left. Not wanting to annoy anyone any further, Lush thought about it, and then he thought about it, and then he thought about it. But the drivers had already worked out a compromise, of sorts. They all decided to drive in the middle. But dwarfing a possible fender bender, Lush's main concern was food, or the lack thereof. Madagascar, and certainly the well-populated Anserain area, had already been suffering with this issue before the Allies arrived. Now, it was acute. Yet to Churchill and his war cabinet, they were relieved that Vichy was at the negotiating table. In fact, these men were already counting down the days when the 13th and 17th Brigades could be sent on to India, followed by the 29th Brigade in two months' time. The other reason that the 13th and 17th Brigades would be free to leave is that the garrison brigades were finally chosen. There would be one mobile brigade, it was a rather large island, and two garrison brigades. Also, General Smuts was throwing in a full brigade group, the 7th Motorized Brigade. And lastly, there were to be two other African brigades brought over. Once all of these arrived, the 13th and 17th could depart. Strangely, despite the appearance of the Japanese, Churchill seemed to have lost his fear of them, at least in regards to Madagascar, pretty quickly. He believed the operation to retake the island from them would require a force of the Japanese of at least 10,000 men and its own fleet. He could not see how the Japanese could cut out such a force while they were trying to hold on to what they had and obtaining more in the Pacific. Plus, the Americans were now starting to push back there. Hence, as Churchill told Seifert on May 15th, holding Diego Suarez, which must on no account be hazarded. Standing opposite of all this was Jan Smuts. He still wanted the entire island taken and had solid reasons. But it was simply more than could be done, at least from the War Cabinet's perspective, and that's what mattered. 
Not that these experienced men had an answer to the challenge, what if the Japanese landed on the southern part of the island and established themselves. It might take more men to hold on to Diego Suarez than it would to seize and garrison the entire island, Jans Mutz said. It was a gamble to be sure, but it was one that could be taken. And it was a gamble, as the Japanese made clear. The submarine flotilla was still in the area and still active. Immediately to the west of Madagascar is the coastline of Mozambique, thus the water in between them is called the Mozambique Channel. And during the second week of June, 11 merchantmen were sunk. Having had their own happy time, a reference to the U-boats sitting off America's east coast and downing tens of thousands of tons of shipping, the Japanese subs then departed to the southeast side of Madagascar to refuel and rearm. After that, they sank 13 more ships and then headed back east. Ironically, making British-Vichy relations even more complicated, London thought the Japanese subs were being resupplied by Vichy elements in southern Madagascar. Annette denied this over and over, but was not believed. And yet, Annette had been told any request by a Japanese submarine for permission to stay in Madagascar port longer than normal under international law should, therefore, be granted. All Tokyo had to do was ask, but they did not. As things were generally moving apace, the 13th Brigade had departed for Bombay on May 20th. Of course, such a percentage of the brigade was by then sick with malaria and dengue fever, so when they arrived, they were not used until more of their men could stand on their own. This left the 17th Brigade waiting for their replacements, and on May 23rd, the 4,000-man 22nd East African Brigade was soon to be picked up at Mubasa and brought over. When the East Africans arrived, the 17th Brigade departed on June 12th. But like the 13th, many of its men were still sick. Either way, they did not know how things would go in India, but they were just happy to be departing from this formidable island. And the replacements kept coming. By the third week of June, the South African 7th Motorized Brigade Group made landfall. It had troops trained to fight in urban areas, artillery units, and an armored car unit, besides infantry. They were placed just below the Arachart airfield, but above Joffreville, so they were a key part of the defensive perimeter. And even though the British-led forces were hoping Vichy would not attack them, along with the Japanese, they found that solidifying their new possession meant occupying more territory, hence the fighting was not over. Now that Vichy was at the negotiating table, and at least not launching a serious attack, at the end of May, Lieutenant General Platt, General Officer Commanding East Africa Command, was told that the island was now his responsibility, starting in July. Madagascar was being added to the just-created islands area, with Mauritius and the Seychelles, and altogether, they would be under the more immediate command of a Major General Smallwood, but he would report to Platt. Mauritius is to the east of Madagascar, the Seychelles about 700 miles or 1,126 kilometers northeast of Madagascar. However, if these islands were to help each other in a time of crisis, the sea lanes between them had to be open, 
And that meant with East Africa in general, where Platt's command was, which meant the island of Mayotte, located almost level with Diego Suarez Bay to the west and in between the island and the African coast, and almost equal distant from both. The island was held by determined Vichy troops, but it also had a powerful radio station that the British needed, as well as needing Vichy to not have this radio. Thus, Operation Throat would be launched. True, the small island only had about 100 armed police, but as each one of them was expected to resist to the last, they would be weighed more worthy than they seemed. Besides, the attack had to be quick and quiet, as everything on the island of value, certainly the radio station, was rigged to blow, and the French governor had given explicit orders to destroy everything if they saw one British soldier. Doing the actual fighting and occupying would be the 30 commandos from 121 force, but assisted by C Company of the 5th Battalion King's African Rifles, along with units of light artillery, signals, and intelligence. To be carried out at night, as surprise could achieve all objectives, whereas force would get most of them destroyed, under the cover of darkness, the men of Throat moved closer to Mayotte. Taking the men in was the cruiser Dauntless, borrowed from the Eastern Fleet and the destroyer Active. They were loaded up on June 30th, but at 3 a.m., now July 2nd, the men began to disembark. At the main port at Manmudzi, the men of the King's African Rifles snuck ashore and crept towards the closest houses and administrative buildings. The 100 or so policemen may have been taught to hate the British, but they still needed rest, and that's how the men of the KAR found them. Important officials, guards, and even the chief of the district was captured without incident. To be sure, some of the policemen had figured out what was happening, and they tried to run, but the infantry had already set up roadblocks, or in this case, nets, to capture those not found in their pajamas. Meanwhile, the commandos were busy climbing the cliffs of Dezaudzo, the administration center, not on the island per se, but on its own land, close by Mayotte. Good news, they captured the radio station intact. Even better news, they also captured the governor of the Comoros group. In the end, no one died, nothing was destroyed. Also, the nearby island of Pamasi was also taken, which would soon house an airfield for the Allies. With this done, General Platt wanted to give Governor General Annette one more chance to officially surrender. This was all over but the fighting, but that's exactly what the British wanted to avoid, as the men on Madagascar were needed in Burma, as things were not so rosy there. But because de Gaulle was still making a stink about the islands, Platt had someone deliver a message to Annette face-to-face. Nothing was written down that could get back to the free French. But Annette never replied to Platt, who figured out he would have not liked the response anyways. Thus, something had to give. Madagascar had to be locked down, so the British could return to the war proper, and that meant sending the 29th Brigade from Diego Suarez to Burma. So Annette was to be given one last chance. They would come to an understanding, or Vichy 
would come under arms. 